Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 13th, 2022, and this is show number 879. Well, I'd like to start the show by saying happy anniversary to Steve. Yesterday, we were married 39 years, and uh, we haven't killed each other yet, so I'm thinking that's good, good looking good for, for number 40. Anyway, this has been a a really crazy last couple of weeks, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. I've got a couple of great stories to tell you, and Alistair Jenks will come in between them with a fun review as a palate cleanser. Well, if you're looking through a methodical walk through the Apple March Peak event that discusses point by point every detail and spec that Apple presented, you will be sorely disappointed on this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond. Instead of being in any way methodical, Adam Angst of Tidbits and I drive right into the middle and enjoy ourselves talking about whatever we enjoyed. We jump around, we tell anecdotes, we talk about how the landscape is changing for Apple and the industry. We do get into a spec here and there to add flavor to the discussion, and we do talk about the products, but to call our conversation methodical and meticulous would be highly misleading. You can always catch up with Adam's work at tidbits.com to read the longest-running internet technology publication. And of course, you can find Chit Chat Across the Pond light in your podcatcher of choice. Last October, I created a diagram to try to explain all of the different options available in laptops for the M1 Pro and M1 Max Apple Silicon processors. Now, this diagram is still valid, but this week when Apple added yet another version of Apple Silicon, the M1 Ultra, things got a little more interesting. In addition, for the first time since 2006, they introduced an entirely new computer, the Apple Studio. I don't know if people realize that, that it's been that long since an entirely new computer has come out. The last time they introduced an entirely new computer was the first MacBook. They also introduced a new version of the iPad Air, which means we now have three iPad models which sport M1 processors. I started thinking about how this might call for a new diagram. Now, it's not entirely obvious, unless you spend quality time on Apple.com, that you can get three different kinds of Apple computers with M1 Max, but only two with M1 Pro and one with M1 Ultra, or that Apple now sells six different devices with a regular M1. Now, I hope this new diagram of the Apple M1 family as of March 2022 will be helpful to you. I put the month on the diagram because we've still got the Mac Pro coming out, and I wanted to be ready for that update. In case you're wondering, all of the diagrams that I've made were made with the awesome web-based tool diagrams.net. I also want to draw your attention to a link I'm going to put in the show notes to a fantastic article written by Adam Angst. Now, You guys know how I kind of descend into madness when I get my teeth into some data like making the previous diagram. Well, Adam makes me look like a rank amateur on this. In his article, he walks through uh, the different kind of configurations and a way to think about the fact that the 27-inch iMac isn't there and what should you buy knowing that there is no 27-inch iMac and probably won't be a 27-inch iMac. One of the things he looks at is in his uh, diagrams and charts, and he's got lots of things, including money and comparing money to the specs of the, like of the uh, Geekbench specs of the different models. And what he tries to explain is that when you think about the expense of the Apple studio display, think about it in terms of how long you can actually use that display. So he takes, for example, what would it cost you to buy three iMacs in a row versus 
one or three different computers with one studio display and it'll and the different configurations many of them are much less expensive than you would get if you actually just used uh got an iMac so it's a really great article it's of course on tidbits.com and there will be a link in the show notes to that article it, i think it's fantastic and like i said he makes me look like i'm not crazy when i do my uh diagrams and my intense research I also would like to point out that poor Steve has been suffering with the 2017 27-inch iMac along with his brand new M1 Max MacBook Pro, but we decided to buy him the Mac Studio M1 Max and the Apple Studio Display. He's getting the Mac Studio at the end of March, but the display doesn't come till about a week later. I, I hope the poor thing can, can last that long. In any case, I'm sure I'll be telling you all about it. Maybe even Steve will do a review. We'll see. Well, I have something very exciting to tell you about. And instead of telling a 2,500-word story first and saving the punchline, I'm going to tell you the news first. Now, I'm still going to tell the 2,500-word story, but you just won't have to wait for the dramatic reveal. Here is the big announcement. Podfeet.com is wicked fast now. We have finally solved all of the problems that were plaguing it, and it is now faster than I ever thought possible. My hope was that we'd get it down to maybe two-second page loads, but it's way, 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 way faster than that now. All right, with the fun part of the way out of the way, let's talk about how we fixed it. We'll start with a tiny bit of review. A few weeks ago, I told you about how I was working hard to try to figure out why it was so slow. Now, podfeed.com hasn't been the snappiest website for a long time, but it had really hit a wall in performance, making it nearly unusable. I threw money at the problem at first by doubling the number of virtual CPUs, and while that did get the server out of its temporary jam, very quickly the percentage CPU usage started to climb again. We were out of 40-second page load times, but we were still seeing hours at a time where the CPU was just skimming under 100% usage. Bart's next idea, as I explained last time, was to move the database to a dedicated server. And that's when our hero, William, also known as Bill, Reveal, joined the party to figure out how to fix that pesky encoding problem. As I reported, things got faster after we successfully moved the database, but still, we had those pesky, like, 98% load periods for extended periods of time. Bart's next idea was to move podfeed.com under the protection of Cloudflare. They have a free service where they manage the DNS records. Those are the records that allow you to type in a URL and it gets converted to the correct IP address. Cloudflare specialize in protecting those domains under their wing against denial of service attack. Now, we didn't think my server was under a DDoS because the traffic numbers didn't account for that and, and bandwidth, they just didn't account for it. But we knew it wouldn't hurt and it didn't hurt but it also didn't help. At this point, my web server and my database were on separate virtual machines, and both were hosted by DigitalOcean. But Bill noted that the traffic between them was on the open internet, which isn't recommended from a security standpoint, if you can help it. In the DigitalOcean service, if you create a new droplet today, which is their name for a virtual machine, they put it in what they call the Virtual Private Cloud, or VPC. VPC is a logically isolated network for cloud resources. The database servers, since it was brand new, was created in their VPC, but the original web server was built long enough ago that it was not. Bill suggested that the traffic would be more protected, and hopefully the site would be served more quickly if both servers were on the VPC. Luckily, it's very trivial to move a droplet into the VPC with DigitalOcean. You simply press a button to create a snapshot of your server, wait till it finishes, turn off the original server, and turn on the snapshot in the VPC. 
I bet you will be shocked to learn that this method did not work for us. The problem was something called cPanel. Now, I'm what my friend Linda would call a reasonably bright girl, but I'm definitely still learning when it comes to managing my servers myself. Bart has been slowly but surely teaching me by having me do all the typing and configuring while he directs and watches. But to be honest, a great deal of it often flies over my head. One of those fly-over-my-head moments was a few years ago when he suggested I use something called cPanel to help me manage my site. Until two weeks ago, I thought cPanel was just a nifty little web interface that let me get to things like PHP my admin to play with my database, maybe add certificates, and do update kind of things. Well, evidently, cPanel is much, much more, and it was actually part of the structural fabric of my web server. I know that now because the existence of cPanel in my environment meant it was not possible to put the snapshot of podfeed.com into the VPC. So Bill and I did a lot of searches about how to extricate cPanel from my server, and all of these websites said, don't even try. You just got to burn it to the ground and start over. I mean, all of them. There were some that said, well, you can, but you're going to waste way more time than if you just burn it to the ground and start over. So that's what we did. So Bill was very much in favor of this move for a more fundamental reason. I mentioned before that web servers are often on what's called the LAMP or WAMP stack, where the L stands for Linux, a W would stand for Windows, but usually LAMP. The acronym in its full stands for Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. So that's the operating system is Linux, the web server software is Apache, the database is MySQL, and the programming language is PHP. When Bill and I were done, my server was no longer on the LAMP stack. I think the changes and debates we had along the way are really interesting. As I said, PHP is the programming language in LAMP, which I don't actually ever type anything in, but WordPress definitely does. But it turns out there's two versions of PHP, which I did not know before this. Now, I promise I won't get too deep into this part, mostly because my understanding is fairly limited, but it may actually be the most significant part of the story. PHP is a way to run a server-side script when an HTTP request comes in. So that's like when you guys ask for something from podfeed.com. The two versions of PHP are PG... I'll get this right. The two versions of PHP are PHP CGI and PHP FPM. Again, I didn't know these two things existed before. Turns out PHP FPM is the fast version of PHP CGI. Well, I want fast, right? I don't want the slow and old and busted one. I want the fast one. As Bill explained it to me, PHP CGI is good for low traffic sites, but PHP FPM, which is the fast CGI process manager, is significantly more efficient for high traffic sites. Well, that got to a question. I had asked Bill, is my site high or low traffic? While I know podfeed.com isn't the New York Times, but it's also not Sally's left-handed wingnut supply store either. He did some research into my traffic and statistics, and he declared podfeed.com officially medium. He said I should be congratulated, and I was very proud. Now, Bill said that if we're going to rebuild podfeed.com from scratch, we might as well do it using PHP FPM. He based this theory on the fact that the only thing that seemed to be churning on my server when these CPU bottlenecks were happening was PHP CGI. So, PHP FPM it is. Now, I didn't really appreciate what Bill and I were about to undertake in building podfeed.com from bare metal. While it was a ton of work, it was fascinating, and I had so much fun learning from Bill. Like Bart, Bill directed while I did all of the typing. 
Now, I'm not even going to pretend that I understood everything we did, and I definitely couldn't replicate, eh, what, 90% of what we did, but I get a better appreciation for what it means to build a server from scratch. The first thing you have to do is decide on an operating system. Well, this first decision created an interesting discussion between Bart, Bill, and me. Bart likes CentOS and it, because it's what he manages with his university work hat on, and it has a lot of great features. But if it was all up to Bill, he would have gone with Ubuntu. Now, CentOS is more of an enterprise-level OS with lots of security features built in, which is a good thing, but being an enterprise operating system means it moves more slowly, so CentOS is actually using a fairly old version of PHP. Bart, Bill, and I had to discuss which way to go. Now, my worry at this point was I would be caught between these two people who are both doing so much work to help me. Now, you know, nerds can get into holy wars, but that wasn't going to happen with Bill and Bart. Because they're both fine, intelligent people with good hearts, we quickly decided to go with Bart's choice of CentOS because we know he'll be working with me for the long haul. Having gotten to know Bill, I suspect he'll be with me for the long haul too, but we had to flip a coin and the toss went to CentOS. The second decision was which web server software to go with. Remember I said that the A in LAMP was for Apache and that was the web server software? Turns out Apache's not the only option for web server software. Bart prefers something called Nginx. It's spelled N-G-I-N-X. I have no idea why. I do remember 100 years ago, he stood up a tiny IRC chat server for me and he used Nginx when he built it, but I didn't really know what that meant back then. Now, Bart sees Nginx as much easier to manage than Apache, but of course, Bill was much more comfortable with Apache. The coin toss went again to Bart and we went with Nginx. Now, remember I said my web server isn't on the LAMP stack before, or anymore? Well, the M has gone all together because MySQL isn't even running on the web server. It's over on that separate database, dedicated database server. So that would leave me with LAP. But the A is gone too because I'm not using Apache as the web server software. I'm using Nginx. That means I have a LIMP server. doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? I, I can't even pronounce it. It's LNP. Now, another thing I didn't appreciate before we went into this exercise is what doesn't exist when you stand up a virtual machine with just an operating system. There was nothing there. I mean, not even a user account for me. We had to install tools in order to install tools. Now, the good news for you is that I can't remember everything we did, and I probably couldn't explain most of it. But once we had Nginx functioning as a web server, it was actually a pretty easy task to copy over all of the WordPress files to the new server and point the Cloudflare DNS at the new server. But there was another piece to figure out, and it hasn't been working completely right just yet. It may be by now, but it was uh, it was pretty messed up as of this morning. You know how I tell you to go to podfeet.com slash Patreon to help support the show? But if you type that in, it actually takes you to Patreon.com. That works because of what's called a redirect. And in Apache, it's stored in a text file called .htaccess. Donald Burr actually helped me build my .htaccess file years and years ago. And every time I think of something new for which I want to give you an easy link, I just copy a line Donald wrote and I change it for the new redirect. I love these redirects because if at some point there's a better way to support the show than Patreon, I can keep podfeet.com slash Patreon and just redirect it to the new service. You don't have to remember. I also use these for internal links like podfeet.com slash live actually goes to HTTPS colon www.podfeet.com slash blog slash nosilicast-live. That is way too hard to remember. Podfeet.com slash live. Everything good starts with podfeet.com. All of that is because of this .htaccess file. But guess what? 
Nginx doesn't use .htaccess. It uses a .conf uh, file. C-O-N-F is what I'm saying there, so .conf. Anyway, that's inside the Nginx directory. The syntax is completely different from .htaccess, and I don't understand it very well at all. It was unfamiliar to Bill as well, and we got most of it working, but even with his help, we managed to make an infinite loop of redirects within podfeed.com at one point. Since without Patreon and PayPal, I don't get paid, I said I wasn't willing to move the server over until we had at least those two links functioning. Eventually, we got them working, and we got most of the redirects working, so we flipped the switch to move to the new, built-from-scratch server. I told you it's fast now, and I even said wicked fast. I can prove that with real numbers. When all this mess started, I installed a plugin for WordPress called Query Monitor. That's over on my my web server, but inside the WordPress interface. We installed this because it would report on errors and warnings that we hoped would point at a root cause for these big slowdowns. It didn't find anything wrong, which was disappointing, but of course, it was actually good news. But Query Monitor also has a little display that shows when you're logged into WordPress to tell you how fast the pages are loading. After I doubled the number of CPUs, the page loads went from as bad as 40 seconds down to 6 seconds. Now, on occasion, when podfeed.com was in a good mood and the wind was blowing and it was maybe on a Wednesday, it would get down to maybe two seconds to paint a page. I know that sounds great, but two seconds is actually really annoyingly long. After Bill and I built the web server from scratch, running Nginx and PHP FPM, the fast version, with a dedicated database server and using Cloudflare, I am happy to report that most pages come up in about a quarter of a second. Seriously, a 10x improvement in speed. Now, I find it interesting that we still don't know why the original server was churning the CPU so hard. We know the database move didn't fix it, and neither did going behind Cloudflare. They might have helped a little bit, but they didn't really fix that root cause problem. We're pretty sure nothing was attacking it from the outside, but clearly something was going on inside the machine. Was it PHP CGI? Was it Apache? Was it nearly 17 years of cruft and just in time to, or just barely time to do a nuke and pave? We'll never know. The one thing we do know is the speed of podfeed.com makes me deliriously happy. It made me happy when I created my diagram about the different M1 options, and I knew if it got popular, people would get it quickly, which helps it get more popular. It also makes both Steve and me positively joyous because we're the ones who have to go into the WordPress interface all the time, which took forever until now. I use MarsEdit to write the blog post, and when I would hit publish, I could just go make a cup of coffee before it would actually be up on podfeet.com. I love it so much, I just keep going to page after page of my own website to watch it blink and load. Of all the comments about how fast the site is now, I think my latest favorite is what Alistair Jenks said in Slack. He said, It's disconcertingly fast. Isn't that awesome? Well, another super fun side effect of this work was that Bill slowly and gently improved my skills using the VI editor, or as he calls it, Vi. He didn't make me use it, but I said I wanted to get better at it. I was using some other editing tools, but I know VI is the good one and I should be using it. By the end of two weeks of working together, he started noticing I was getting faster at anticipating what he was going to tell me to do and becoming more natural in using the tools of managing a server. I simply cannot thank Bill enough for all of his help. I said he did a lot before, 
But what he did in the last couple of weeks and the time he spent was beyond generous. I'm talking like we were together probably 10 or 15 hours, and he did at least 10 hours of research and side work on his own, even built a, a server so that using Nginx and, and uh, PHP FPM so he would know how to do it when he, when he helped me. But throughout all of this, he was fun. He taught me so many things. We laughed a lot, mostly geek jokes, and we were successful. I told him that Steve and I really felt we should pay him for his time because he does do some of this as a side job. He's retired, but he does it for, uh, you know, for real money. But he wouldn't let us do that. He said that he's been listening to the NoSellaCast for something like 15 years and that he's never contributed anything before. He was happy that he was finally able to contribute in a meaningful way. Gotta tell you guys, Bill is my hero. So now please go to podfeed.com and push all the links and rejoice with all of us at how fast it is. I recently purchased a new desk for my study, which I reviewed in a separate submission. If you heard or read that, you may recall I said my old desk was 1.2 meters long and the new one is 1.8 meters long. Sitting in the center of the desk, each end is now 300 millimeters further away which isn't generally a problem except for one thing. A few years ago, I think after Bart did the same, I purchased a desk mount microphone boom. I bought it off a local auction site for a little over $20, so it wasn't anything fancy, but it got the job done. The issue it has now is its maximum reach of only 700mm. When clamped to the end of my new desk, it is 200mm shy of making it to the centre where I sit. I considered various workarounds like positioning my computer 200mm off centre or clamping it to the front of the desk 200mm from the end. Neither of these were satisfactory as they impinged on other uses of the desk space. So I decided it was time for a new boom. I did some research and found a local shop which had a couple of options for $169 New Zealand dollars and $229. Just before Christmas, I popped in and had a chat with a salesperson about them. The more expensive one was an impressive device, but it was more than I really wanted to pay, and I thought the less expensive one wasn't going to be long enough. I told the salesperson I'd do some more research before committing to any purchase, and at any rate, if I was going to spend $229, then I'd wait a month or two after Christmas. When I was contemplating writing and recording the review of my new desk, I thought I should once again do my research on the microphone booms. One of my searches again brought up the $169 model I mentioned above at the same retailer, and I took another look. I realised that the maximum reach was 980mm, which is long enough to do the job. But I was concerned that the product photos showed a microphone mounted upside down on the end. I was unsure if it could be mounted right way up, which is what I need for my dynamic microphone. And particularly if I'm using it near the maximum horizontal reach and have no means to go high as well. So I wanted to take a look at the $229 model again. And when attempting to find this on the retailer's site, I stumbled across a third product. This one looked very much like my existing arm, but it also had a reach of 980mm. It was the same brand as the more expensive one, so it was a quality item, but the cost was only $119, much more affordable. The product is called the Gator Frameworks Broadcast Boom Desk Mount Mic Stand. However, the other two had very similar names, so the product code for this one is 
GFW-MICBCBM1000. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The boom comes with both a desk clamp mount and one you can screw to the surface of the desk. I'm using the clamp which is sturdy and easily attached around the end of the desk, allowing for up to 55mm thickness. Unlike my prior cheap one, the clamp fits snugly and does not move once firmly attached to the desk, even when the boom is at full extension. The boom is comprised of two sections, the first comprises of three steel tubes in a triangular configuration, and the second has two tubes vertically. These are articulated at the base, central joint and at the microphone mount, and are spring balanced with sturdy and stiff springs, which makes lifting the boom slightly easier than lowering it. The stiffness of the springs helps avoid audible vibrations from them, another issue with my prior one. All of these metal parts are finished with a black powder coat, and the microphone mount is a short polished steel rod with a standard 5 eighths of an inch thread. The whole boom swivels smoothly and quietly from the base through 360 degrees, though a small thumb wheel adjuster can be tightened to resist this rotation. At the centre articulation is another larger wheel to adjust the resistance at that joint, and the microphone mount can also be similarly restrained with another large wheel to ensure the microphone angle remains fixed. I did find this last one needs to be tightened a lot to prevent the mount shifting its angle. Unrestrained, the mount can be rotated about its vertical axis, critical to fixing the angle of the microphone when fully tightened on the mount thread, and through over 270 degrees around the front to rear axis. This latter rotation enables the microphone to be upright, upside down, or somewhere in between. There is no provision for tilting backwards or forwards, however the shock mount I have has this axis covered. Once the microphone angle is restrained, it will remain consistent throughout the range of motion of the boom, thanks to the way the articulations are configured. All movements of the boom are smooth and silent, with no noise from the springs unless you actually tweak them directly, or fold it back beyond the vertical. Folded fully back, slightly past the vertical, the boom rises to approximately 500mm off the desk, and around 150mm each side of the rotation axis of the desk mount. With the thumb wheels tightened to provide moderate resistance, the whole boom is remarkably stable even at full extension. With the two sections forming a straight line, I can have the microphone mount at the centre of my desk and about 450mm above the desk. Giving the boom a vertical tweak at this point results in a quickly damped movement of only about plus or minus 5mm. Back to front it moves a little more but tightening the wheel at the base would likely reduce this at the expense of the ease of swinging it out and back. If this all sounds great, you'd be right. I'm very pleased with my purchase. But I have so far failed to mention the best part of this product's design. It has an integrated XLR cable. For the old boom I had cable tied my XLR cable to strategic points, but this took a bit of getting right with the slack at the right points, and also restricted some movement of the boom. The Gator boom comes with what the box describes as a 10 foot XLR cable. However, that cable is threaded through the tubular steel of both arms, with around 400mm protruding at the microphone end and 1.5m at the base end. It also pops out at the central articulation to allow some slack when changing the relative angles. 
There's plenty at the microphone end for mounting any accessory like a shock mount, and as long as your mixer or microphone interface is within 1.5 meters of the base, you're set. This Gator Frameworks microphone boom is available on Amazon for $59.99 US dollars. But as I mentioned, I bought it from a local retailer, and I encourage you to do so as well. Given recent events, people have been shopping online far more rather than in person, and so local businesses have suffered a lot. Shopping locally helps your local community. I would probably have bought where I did anyway, because they've seen me right in the past with excellent knowledge and advice, and never pushing for a sale. Most recently, I bought the Zoom H1N portable audio recorder there, but there is another purchase that sticks in my mind. The AKG D88S dynamic microphone mounted on my new boom was purchased from the same shop, along with a small Behringer UB502 mixer and a few accessories, in August 2006. Allison and others have often complimented my sound, which is in large part down to the fantastic advice I received from the Wellington branch of The Rock Shop over 15 years ago. The only functional part of my setup that has changed in those 15 years is a USB interface, also a Behringer, bought at another local business, that was needed once I bought a Mac with no line-in socket. Well, I got to tell you, I am such a huge fan of boom arms uh, for microphones. Being able to get your mic out of the way is the best thing ever. And like he says, it, it isolates the uh, the sound better. Uh, Alistair did ask me to add one new update to his review. He recorded this a while ago, and when he recorded it for us, he was using a Behringer interface. But since then, he has replaced the Behringer with the Elgato Wave XLR, and I quote here, because Marty made us all do it. A few weeks ago, when I was explaining the work Bill, Bart, and I were doing to try to increase the speed of podfeed.com, I told you that it was costing me more and more money as we added resources like the dedicated web uh, database server and doubling the number of CPUs in our attempts to fix the problem. Now, the great news is that a fair number of people stepped up to help defray those increased costs. Most of those people were already patrons, which is even more amazing. I got to tell you about a new one. The spectacular Stephen Ewell just doubled his pledge to help cover the bills. Now, how cool is that? Well, more good news is that with the elimination of cPanel from my server, it's actually going to save me $15 a month. With all the new contributions, it definitely has paid for the increases in cost. But the podcast definitely still does cost me money to produce. I do not yet break even. If you'd like to help support the show like Stephen, please go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and choose an amount that shows the value you get out of what you learn here. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, go to podfeet.com slash PayPal. And yes, both of those links are working. I am a huge fan of the well-known app Hazel from Noodlesoft. You've probably heard of it and may use it yourself, but just in case you haven't, I'll briefly describe what it does and then the problem it solves for me before I tell you why I'm talking about it today. Hazel watches folders you specify and then takes action on the items in those folders according to rules you specify. Many people learn to use Hazel during the dawn of the paperless movement because Hazel can recognize text patterns, set the name of the scanned documents to match, and then file away those scanned documents into folders according to those names. While Steve and I use Hazel in exactly that way, I have another huge use case for this delightful tool. I create a lot of data every week with the podcast. The audio and image files for the NoSilicast and Chichet Across the Pond add up to around 4 gigabytes per week. You can imagine that if I didn't pay attention, I'd soon be out of disk space. 
In the old days, I had to remember to go clean out these directories by hand, but with Hazel, I have it all automated. I still want to keep these files, but they definitely don't need to live on my internal laptop drive. When a podcast episode ages past two weeks, my rules tell Hazel to sweep up after me and whisk all of these files over to my network-attached storage. In order to perform this magic, I have a tiny Apple script in my rules for each folder that tells the application finder to mount the volume for the share on my NAS. I didn't write this Apple script. It was actually written for me years ago by one of the lovely developers who works on Chronosync. The Apple script simply tells the finder to try to mount the server by its IP address, and if it can't do it, throw an error to tell me that it failed. This process works flawlessly till one of two things happen. As soon as I leave my home network, I am bombarded with error messages because that script can't find my NAS to mount the share. My only recourse is to open Hazel and pause every rule one by one that is associated with moving files to my NAS. I have to then put in a reminder to unpause those rules when I come back home. The other problem is that our NAS is in our spare bedroom. Whenever we have friends or family spend the night, Steve shuts it down so the noise and lights don't bother our guests. Personally, I just leave it running and tell them to live with it, but Steve is a much better host than I am. The main reason I'd tell them to live with it is, again, that I get bombarded with error messages because my script can't mount the share on the NAS, and Hazel warns me about this catastrophe every single time. Again, with a pausing and unpausing dance. Well, I was recently chatting with Paul Kim, the awesome developer of Hazel, about my problem, and he made a suggestion that made me slap my head that I didn't think of it before. He asked me why I don't include in the script a test to find out if the server is available before trying to mount the drive. This was so obvious, and yet it never occurred to me. I solved the problem using a combination of Apple shortcuts and a shell script. But guess what? I'd never written a successful shell script or shortcut before. I confess that because I want you to realize that you can probably figure this out too. I don't want you to think I'm some accomplished developer now who, does, who knows how to write these scripts. I'm just someone who's gained confidence by trying and having small victories. Those small victories give me more confidence to try the next thing the next time. Now, I started by looking at the existing Apple script I'd embedded in Hazel, and I thought about, you know, do I really want to invest time learning more about Apple script? It's certainly a very viable scripting language on the Mac, but it's not getting any love from Apple these days, and I really don't like sticking with things that most likely are on their way out of fashion. If I'm going to learn something new, I'd rather learn it in an enthusiastically supported environment. In Hazel, there's a drop-down to allow you to choose the scripting language option. And in addition to AppleScript, I discovered that you can run JavaScript, automated workflows, shell scripts, and shortcuts. I've tried several times to use shortcuts, and every single time I gave up because I couldn't get it to do my bidding. I really did want to find something this automation technology could do for me because all the cool kids seem to be doing it. It was time to try shortcuts again. I launched the Shortcuts app on my Mac and I typed server into the search window for available actions. I was delighted to find the connect to servers action. This delightful, or the delightful thing about Shortcuts and Automator before it is that you can simply drag and drop these actions into a workflow. I dragged the connect to servers action into the workflow and it helpfully suggested I type in smb colon slash slash. That's the method to make the connection. SMB is a network file sharing protocol, which you'll often hear referred to as Samba. And Samba is the free and open source implementation of the original SMB. Samba runs on pretty much everything on Linux, Solaris, macOS, and Windows. So just like you type HTTPS colon colon or colon slash slash to get to a website, you type SMB colon slash slash to get to a server on your network. 
I pointed the connector server action to the IP address of my NAS and, and uh, actually to the file share name of my Synology NAS, and I ran the shortcut and boom, the share mounted as a volume on my desktop. I really felt like this is going to be an easy task. All I had to do next was wrap a couple of if-then-else statements around that action, and I'd be golden. So, what conditions need to be checked? I knew that the most crucial if statement I needed was to only run this action if I was on the same network as the NAS. I did a search in shortcuts for network, and I found the action get network details. That sounded like a good place to start, so I dragged it in before the connect to server action. Get network details can return the network name, so I was able to add an if statement comparing the network name to the name of my main Wi-Fi network. From there, if they matched, I could tell it to connect to the server and mount the share. I tested it while on my main Wi-Fi network and it successfully mounted the server share. I switched to my guest Wi-Fi network and it skipped right over the connect to server part and stopped silently with no annoying warnings about not being able to find it. This was a great start, but there are three issues with this. Number one, I'd have to be on Wi-Fi for this to work. When I'm streaming video for the live show or as a guest on other shows, I always disable Wi-Fi because it makes for a more stable connection. While this workflow solves the first problem of checking to see if I'm on my home network, it doesn't tell me that the server is alive on the network. This, this uh, shortcut I had written will fail if Steve puts the Synology to sleep. Finally, and surprisingly, if the server is already mounted, actually, I, shouldn't, I said that wrong, if it'll fail if Steve shuts down the Synology. So finally, and surprisingly, if the server is already mounted, the shortcut fails and pops up an alert telling me it failed. So, while shortcuts was easy and quick, just like Automator before it, I had to bring out heavier tools to create a workflow that could provide the granularity I required. It was time to use a shell script. I wasn't going to abandon shortcuts, but rather use a combination of the two tools. Before I walk through how I figured out what to put in the shell script, let me quickly explain what a shell script actually is. You know how you can open the terminal and type in a command? That command you're typing is going into what's called a shell. Shell scripts are just a bunch of terminal shell commands piled together. For example, in terminal, you can type cd tilde, where the tilde means your home directory. When I type cd tilde, it takes me to slash user slash Allison. To create a shell script for the same action, I could open text edit and type in cd tilde, save the file as myscript.txt, and then run it as a shell script. I'm sure the real nerds are having fits to hear me explain it so simplistically, but I'm going to say it again. A shell script is just a bunch of terminal commands that you run one after another. Now, I mentioned up front that I've never actually written a shell script before, but luckily the internet has written lots of them. It's all about figuring out the right search terms. The first thing I wanted my fancy shell script to do was to find out if my NAS was alive on the same network as my Mac. Now, my NAS has a static IP address, will be, which will be helpful in identifying if it's alive on the network. In the terminal, you can ping an IP address to find out if there's an active device at that IP. Just like pinging in a submarine to find potential enemies, when you ping an IP, you don't actually find out what's at that address, you just know something is there. Just like pinging in a submarine when you send sound out and see if it reflects back, pinging an IP address sends a packet of data at that address and waits to see if it echoes back. Make sense so far? I figured I could ping the NAS to see if it's there, but the problem is the ping command by itself just never stops. It just keeps going ping, 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 and tells you the answer, tells you whether it finds something. I only needed one packet sent and echoed back to know that the server is alive at that address. I did some Googling and I found that adding dash C space one to the ping command would mean to count to one packet and then stop. 
See what I mean about you can just Google it? I don't I don't know any of this stuff. I'm just figuring out as I go. Dash C space one, count to one. That's pretty easy. Since my shell script is just going to be a pile of terminal commands, I can test each one in my terminal before putting it into my shell script. While on the same network with the server, I typed into the terminal ping space C, uh, ping space dash C one, and sure enough, it sent one packet of data, it was echoed back, and the command stopped. Then I switched network so that the server shouldn't be found. The same command definitely failed to find the server, but it took forever. Now, forever was just a couple of seconds, but we've already talked about how long a couple of seconds feels. And why should I wait around if the server just isn't there? It's not like I'm trying to ping a server in Nepal. It should be on my internal network, so it will either respond instantly or not at all. I did some reading of the man page for ping. Man is just short for manual. And I found the flag dash W, a capital W, which lets you define the wait time in milliseconds for a response. One millisecond turns out to be plenty of time on my home network for me to know if my server's live. So now I can say ping dash C one for count to one and dash capital W one, my server IP. I can instantly know that the server is there or it's not. I tested it on and off the main network and it succeeded and failed instantly. I was ready to start writing my shell script. I searched in shortcuts for the action script and I found the run shell script action and I dragged it into my workflow. I pasted the full ping command into the shell script and I ran the action. I thought that my if then else statements would have to rely on interpreting the success or failure messages returned by the ping command, but it turned out to be much uh, simpler than that. I discovered that if the ping command succeeds, it returns a value of true. If it fails, it returns false. So I only had to write uh, if pings-c1-w1 at this IP, then do something, which means if the ping succeeds, take the next action. So you just say if ping, that's all you have to say. If the ping, if ping because it's going to be true, you gets to go on to the next action. Now, sure, that's nerdier than my original find out if it's on the same Wi-Fi network shortcut, but this test works whether I'm on Wi-Fi or hardwired Ethernet. Now, remember that my shortcut failed if it tried to mount the server when it was already mounted. So now I had to figure out how to determine if the server's already mounted. If it isn't, the script should mount it. But if it is, the script, sh the script should just stop silently. Now I have to get just a smidge nerdier here, but I promise it won't hurt. I wanna teach you two very easy concepts. The first is the command grep. Think of grep as a synonym for the word search. I don't know why, the nerds don't use search, but use grep, but anyway, we'll go with it. It's a funny word, but it's a simple concept. It just means search. The second term is called pipe, but it's a symbol, not a word. On a US keyboard, pipe is the vertical line right above the return key. Piping means to hand off the result of one command to another command. In my shell script, I wanted to take the result of one search and hand it off to a second search. So I'm gonna grep for a search term, and then I'll pipe the results of that search into another grep to narrow the results. So it'll be grep, pipe, grep. Pretty simple, right? You with me so far? I discovered by Googling that the simple command mount in the terminal will show you every volume mounted on your Mac. It's actually pretty interesting. You can see system volumes like preboot and update. You can see your data volume, services like Google Drive and any local servers you have mounted. We can search the results of the mount command by handing off the results, piping, to our new friend grep. Put that in an if statement and we finally know whether the server is alive on the same network. All I had to write was mount space grep space server IP. 
Now, I won't take the explanation of the shell script any further, because I think you get the basic idea of how I was building it up. I have figured out that at the command line, and thus in a shell script, how to test whether the server is live on the same network, and then test to see if it's already mounted. I told the script to echo back one of three messages depending on the results. The first one was, IP is pining for the fjords, if it didn't find the IP on the network. Server is mounted already, if it found the IP, but the server was already mounted. And server is unmounted if it found the IP, but the server was unmounted. That bit about the IP pining for the fjords was a funny return message someone posted in a forum, and I just decided to keep it, because checking to see if the echoed message said anything about fjords was easy and just darn fun. All right, we got to get back to shortcuts. At this point, I'm relatively certain I could have finished the entire automation just using a shell script, but I was determined to finally get a, a shortcut to do something useful for me, so I embedded the shell script into shortcuts, and I used the logic in shortcuts to complete the job. My new shell script will now tell me one of those three answers, so now I need to feed the answers into a variable so that the shortcut will know whether or not to mount the server share. Now, in shortcuts, it's pretty easy to get a variable out of the previous action, but for some reason, you can't do it directly that I've found. I wanted to first capture the output message from my shell script so I could test to see if it included the word fjord. Oddly, this is a two-step process. First, you have the output flow into a text action, and then from the text action, you can capture it as a variable. Dragging a text action below the shell script allowed me to, get, uh, to find get text from, and then it auto-filled the shell script result. Now that it was considered text, I could set a variable name to the text I just acquired. Now, this whole thing sounds silly, and it sounds even dumber as I try to describe it, because the echoed information was already text. But that's how sh the shortcuts work. Once I cracked the code on creating variables from text, I was ready to run some if-then-else uh, actions. If the text variable contains the word fjords, then we know the server's unavailable. I could then put in a conditional that says, if the variable does not contain the word fjords, then I know it is on the network, so let's keep on going. To create these conditional shortcuts actions have one called if, which you can drag in, and it very helpfully pops the then and else actions in for you. I really like that. After determining that it is on the network, since the variable doesn't contain fjords, I can run another if-then-else set of conditions to, see, to check to see if the share is mounted or not. If it's not mounted, only then should the shortcut connect to the server. And it all worked. I felt like I had made fire. I do want to say... The shortcuts is really buggy, though. I ran into so many things, like uh, twice I accidentally deleted an action, and then I hit Command-Z to undo, and it crashed shortcuts and erased everything I had written in my shortcuts. So, I, and I thought, I thought, wow, am I, am I just unlucky? I'm running into all these bugs, and I did a search online, and I found all these people talking about how buggy shortcuts is. Even David Sparks, who is all over automation, he says it's a little too buggy to use right now. He sees the vision and sees where it's going, but he really thinks maybe using things like uh, Keyboard Maestro is the way to go, not trying to use shortcuts for this kind of stuff. And I, man, I got to tell you, I, I would have probably had a much easier time if I'd just done it all in the shell script. Now, here's a question. Would any of what I just did be helpful to you? I'd been talking to Stephen Getz in Telegram while I was working on this, and he started working on his own version in parallel with me to kind of help out. And he also wanted to have something similar to this. It was super fun to pass ideas back and forth while we were both learning and to both complain about how buggy shortcuts is. 
When I got my version working, I wanted to give it to him so he didn't have to build it himself. If I was going to share the shortcut, it made sense to put in comments explaining what it was doing and how. I also thought it would be more useful if I assigned some variables for the IP address and the share name. That way, Stephen could simply replace the placeholder for the IP address with the one for his NAS and the share he wants to mount and not have to do a search and replace for every instance where I had put my own. And once I'd done that for Stephen, I realized I could share my shortcut with you. Luckily, Apple has a built-in share option that creates an iCloud link, so it's easy to share the love. If you'd like to download my little shortcut and use it yourself, enjoy Mount Server Share on Local Network. Link in the show notes. As with anything you download from the internet, please open it and read what it does, and make sure you understand it before running it with reckless abandon. I do not warranty this in any way, shape, or form. And remember, I'm very new at this, so the chances I mess something up are very high. In any case, though, I'm really pleased with my shortcut and my shell script. I solved a real problem by automating it away, and I learned a lot. I will never have to fuss with Hazel again when I'm away from home, and now I won't resent our sleepover company when they come to stay. I have to thank Paul Kim for giving me the obvious idea, and Stephen Getz for helping me think through all of this. I'm sure there are more efficient and elegant solutions out there, but it doesn't make me any less proud of what I've accomplished. The best part is when I point Hazel at my fancy new shortcut, it actually worked. Next up, I'm going to add my shortcut to my stream deck so I can mount my share with the push of a button anytime I need it. Well, with all of that, I am exhausted, so I'm going to wind this up for this week. Did you know you could email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you want to join in the conversation, I can highly recommend joining our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all the other lovely Nocilla castaways, including Bill Reveal and Bart. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon like the awesome Stephen Ewell does, or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal like Kristoff uh, does once a quarter. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like CJ from Ann Arbor did after a long time away, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.